Once again, that's Jonah, chapter 3, and we'll commence our reading there at the first verse. Here once again, the infallible, the inerrant word of our God. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried, and he said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. Who can tell? If God will turn and repent, and turn away from his fierce anger, that we perish not. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. I say to you frequently, beloved, that this is, of course, a clarifying word. I'm speaking of all of Scripture. The Word of God comes to us, comes to us in a world filled with words, and it comes to us as the only word that really cuts through the darkness and shows us things as they really are. And for this, of course, we ought to be thankful. And the book of Jonah is no different than any other part of Scripture. It is a clarifying word. And as I've said to you already, this text that we have before us is a primer. It is in many ways a manual of repentance. This is the way in which it clarifies our thinking. This shows us what it is for a man really and humbly to approach God as a sinner seeking mercy. This book sets before us paradigms. And, and in many ways, we've already seen that. The way in which the book sets before us these examples, of course, is through concrete individuals. Real people. We, we see this, we see this book as a series of vignettes, as it were, of repentance, beginning with the mariners. We saw in that instance that from the fourth verse all the way to the end of the first chapter, you have there the Lord God setting before us an example of heathens, who hear the voice of the God who is creator and ruler over providence, and they fall before this God who is Jehovah and they repent. And lo and behold, they find mercy. And then as we've been considering the second chapter, we find Jonah no longer the example of rebellion. Now in the second chapter, he becomes once again a picture of repentance. And again, Jonah repents as he feels the heavy, chastening hand of God upon him. When we come to the third chapter, we have Jonah receding once again into the background. And yet another example of repentance coming to the fore. Here you have Nineveh, obviously. Here you have Nineveh standing for us, and for all of those who were the original recipients of the book, 
a picture, an example that ought to be followed for those who would seek pardon from the Lord. My friend, that being the case, allow me to just to say, as we look at these three examples, these three vignettes of repentance, there is one distinction that we encounter in the third chapter that's worthy of note. And I'll mention it now, but we'll certainly come back to it again over the next several weeks. In the first two examples of repentance, you have cases of men who repent under the hand of God in providence. In other words, you have examples of men who hear the rod. But when we come to the third chapter, something drastically changes. In the third chapter, you don't have men who are afflicted, and from their affliction discern the call to repent. You have in Nineveh men who simply are under the sound of the preaching of God's word, and from that they repent. The first two cases are cases of repentance that are really incited through the voice of providence. The third case, the case before us this evening, is a case of souls under the preaching of God's word, hearing the voice of scripture, and from there, from that word, going to God, suing for mercy. Now, I told you already that in many ways Jonah is receding into the background so that this third example can come to the fore. But but before we leave Jonah entirely, it's important for me to say that our text, which is the first four verses really of this third chapter, it does present to us something of the conclusion to Jonah's example. In the first two verses, we are taken back to Jonah. And I just want you to notice what's emphasized. The text is very clear. This is how we're supposed to think about Jonah. Jonah is not just a prophet. He's not just a man that has ended up on the shore out of the afflicting hand of God. He is a man whom, to whom the word of God came, says the prophet, a second time. Now, friend, the reality is we already know that if the word of God comes to Jonah after the whale, we know, of course, this is the second time it's done so. So why emphasize the point? Well, if you continue to the second verse, we find something else emphasized. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. What is being emphasized here? Well, friend, first of all, there's a parallel that we're supposed to be drawing. The behavior of Jonah in our text, these first two verses of of the third chapter, are really and starkly contrasting with what you find, of course, in the first three verses of chapter 1. By saying the word of the Lord came to him a second time, immediately our minds should remember what Jonah was once. What he did once when the word of God came to him. And then you see just how this case is so very different. The word of the Lord came to him, so Jonah arose, as though that's the inciting cause, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. What is emphasized here manifestly is Jonah's obedience. Now, that is the case. These first two verses do provide for us something of a, of a conclusion to this example that we're given in the second chapter of Jonah's repentance. But as we come to verses 3 and 4, that next subject, this next example of repentance comes to the fore. And I want you to notice how it does so. First of all, of course, we're speaking here about Nineveh. And notice the commission. The Lord says to Jonah, go into Nineveh, that great city. It's a repetition of what you have in the second verse of chapter 1. But note the emphasis. He does not merely say Nineveh. That would have been sufficient. 
But he says, go to Nineveh, that great city. Manifestly, the greatness of Nineveh is something that we should be contemplating. But it's even, it even goes further than that, doesn't it? In the third verse, we were told this. Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And so what you have here is the greatness of Nineveh emphasized in Jonah's commission. In the first and in the third chapters. But then even if that were enough, when he comes to the narrative, the greatness of Nineveh is once again stressed. And I want you to notice something, friend. It doesn't come out so clearly in our prose translation, or English translation, rather. But as you look at that verse in the second chapter, a third chapter, rather, you'll find here the words, it was an exceeding great city. You may have a marginal note there. But even if you don't, allow me, I, I don't do this frequently, but, but allow me to read to you just what it is in the Hebrew, and you'll catch why this is such a significant line. The words are, Er gerolah le Elohim. Note the last word is Elohim. The word for God. Literally, that third verse reads, Now Nineveh was a great city before God. That's literally what it means in the original. And I'll friend, as we look at that, of course that's a striking statement, isn't it? It, it, may be, it may be majestic before men. It may be great in the eyes of men. And we wouldn't bat an eye at such a statement. But in our text we're told that Nineveh was a great city before God. This is before the one, of course, who sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And before whom the inhabitants of it are as grasshoppers. This is before the God who has all the nations before him as a drop of a bucket. And yet in some sense we're emphasized here that this is a great city before God. Of course it begs the question in what sense should we understand this greatness? I think to understand the greatness we need to come to the very next line. Not only is Nineveh described for us but we're also given the warning that God had sent. The warning is simply yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now as you look at that text, and you hold that statement together with all that we have in Scripture, all those examples where God reveals to his saints impendent judgment on his enemies, what are we supposed to think? Well, friend, when we look at the Scriptures and we see these moments where God is promising to bring judgment upon his enemies, it comes to us in various ways. Take, for example, the way that it came to Abraham with regard to the Amorites. Of course, in Abraham's day, the Canaanites were wicked folk. They were people who despised God, a people who had oppressed the people of God. And why was it then that in Abraham's day, the Lord didn't remove the Canaanites from the land? We're told in Genesis 15, this is the reason. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And you find that pattern throughout the scriptures. When judgment is described, especially judgment that is prophesied, promised to God's enemies, the idea is, is that they, have, they are really in a time of forbearance, but that time is drawing to a close. They are sinning more and more, and as it were, the more they are sinning, the more quickly their judgment comes. That's the idea of Genesis 15. In fact, it's given to us in this language of harvesting, isn't it? Often the way the scriptures describe judgment, 
judgment like what we have in our text is that of a harvester, seeing that the fields are ripe. And so he takes his sickle and he goes into the field and he harvests. He cuts down those things that are ripe. A friend, the ripeness that's described in Scripture there is the fullness of sin. The idea that they have really come to their limit. A limit in the decree of God. They'll sin thus far and then no more. Their time of forbearance will expire. Now friend, when we look at our text in light of that, what do we find? We find that Nineveh has come to its conclusion. Its time of forbearance is coming to an end. If they do not repent, they will be harvested. And why is that? Again, friend, the idea is is that their sin, like that of the Amorites, was filling. Filling rapidly. And the Lord God had drawn the limit. And And Nineveh is now being notified by Jonah. That limit is nearly met. The limit is nearly met. And that explains for us then, doesn't it, in what sense Nineveh can be considered great before God. Not great in size. Not great to the one whom the heavens of heavens cannot contain. It's not great in strength or in power before the God who is omnipotent. It is great in sin. It is great in sin. Now, we will come to that in just a moment further, but... Before we leave Jonah entirely, I think it's important for me just to say this. Jonah exemplifies, before he fades into the background once more, what it is that real repentance constitutes. Before we look at Nineveh, what the Lord God gives to us is a man who is not merely a penitent in tears or in words. He's a penitent who is in action. In other words, what we see here is a man who is not only under affliction and weeping because of the pain. We find a man who is really and genuinely turned back to the Lord. And so we find a man here who, in spite of all kinds of difficulty, in spite of all kinds of uncertainty, he is, as it were, a man who sets his hand to the plow and he continues. And of course, friend, this is again an example of repentance that we can't miss. But as we do come to Nineveh, Verses 3 and 4 being primarily our focus this evening. I want you to notice that Jonah's preaching belongs to his obedience. In other words, what you have here, whenever Jonah says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, it is precisely what the text says in the second verse. When the Lord says, Preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee, and then he says that Jonah arose according to the word of the Lord, we're supposed to understand that Jonah's preaching was the word of God. This was God's message through Jonah to Nineveh. And the point that I would make to you that's of particular value to us this evening is, friend, is that is the word of God as it's coming to a place like Nineveh. It remains the word of God to places like Nineveh today. It is not merely Jonah's word. It is the word of God that we hear here. Drawing all of that to a basic doctrine, we find this. Just that divine judgment will come to great impenitent sinners. And I want us to see that, first of all, as we see Nineveh, a city great in security. Now as you look through other scriptures, Nineveh is a, is a city that comes to us in the earliest parts of the scriptures. 
comes to us, of course, in Genesis 10. And so, really, really, for almost 2,000 years, Nineveh stood. In fact, what's striking about the history is, for that length of time, we have no record that she was even once overrun. That's a striking thing, isn't it? This city stood strong when so many others fell. I mean, you know the scripture account from Genesis 10 all the way to the text that we're taking up this evening. How many cities do we read of that are destroyed? How many do we see that are overrun, that are forgotten, really, relegated to the dustbins of history? But not Nineveh. Not Nineveh. And here's Jonah's preaching. Yet, that is, in spite of all of that, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You have lasted forty generations, but you will not see forty-one days. That's Jonah's preaching. You've lasted all of this time, but this time will come to an end. You may see yourself secure. Your history may attest to permanence, but forty days and no more. That's Jonah's preaching. That's the message that he carries. You see, friend, the reality is this sets before us a very basic truth that's so crucial for us. Friend, this word of judgment, as solemn as it is, comes to the securest of sinners. To the sinners who seem to be most permanent. I mean, take it precisely from what we sang in Psalm 10. What does is, what is the wicked cry? Here's their cry. They say in their heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. I am secure. I've lasted this long. There is no way for me to be moved in the future. I am permanent. Take it even in the words that we read from Second Peter. Note what their cry is. Where is the promise of His coming? Where is this promise of judgment? That's what Peter is describing from the lips of the apostates. For since the fathers fell asleep, and this is their argument, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The idea is very basic, isn't it? These apostates are saying, well, God has promised judgment upon the likes of ourselves. And it has not come. In fact, how many generations have lasted and still the judgment of God has not been unleashed? And that becomes their argument. That becomes their apology, their defense for their apostasy. They're secure. But friend, you remember what followed those words. Here is the reality. Peter writes, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. All they seemed so permanent. They seem so established. And yet the word of God says they aren't. And that's the very message that Jonah takes to Nineveh. And friend, it's the very message that the word of God holds before every secure sinner tonight. However secure you may seem, you are not. You are not. And friend, the way the scriptures present this to us, when you see just how frequently the word of God comes to secure sinners, and you see how the word of God deals with them, it's almost impossible, I think, to leave them without some sense of trembling. I mean, just allow me to read to you just a few. Here from Isaiah, 
The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Did you catch that? It has surprised them. They weren't expecting it. This judgment that perhaps they had heard so much about, it surprises them in spite of the fact that the prophets rose up early in the morning, as it were, in the words of God. And yet, it came and they were surprised. The Apostle Paul, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Friend, Note how the scriptures convey this idea to us. It's so crucial for us to grasp this now because this is one of the ways that the word of God really clarifies for us how things really are. The world uses the rhetoric of security and permanence every day. The media drums it out morning by morning and evening by evening. You hear it on the streets. There is no sense, no sense at all, that the day of the Lord is coming. No sense at all that even death will come upon us. I mean, is that not the mantra that's alive and well in our songs? We shall never die. We shall never grow old. Friend, this is the word of God coming to our very culture this evening. Saying, however secure you may seem. Friend, you're not. The wicked cry, we have made a covenant with death and with hell, we are at agreement. Death will come to us on our terms. Death will come to us whenever we are good and ready. But here's the Lord's response. Your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. To illustrate this, friend, take what we're given in Deuteronomy 32 just for a moment. The Lord there says, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things that shall come upon them make haste. He describes those who are the objects of his wrath as being placed in a place that is unstable. Their foot is going to slide at any moment. Just in any moment they're going to fall. Friend, that's precisely every sinner this evening outside of Christ. At any moment, they will find their security was false. At any moment, they'll find that their time of forbearance had come to an end. In fact, the prophet there in Deuteronomy 32, Jonah and our text, and really throughout the scriptures, they speak of a judgment that is to come. Flee from the wrath that is to come. In our text, uh, the wrath that is to come in 40 days. In Deuteronomy 32, the things that shall come upon them that are making haste. The words, the wrath to come, friend, it doesn't mean just merely future wrath. The words wrath to come really in, in the literal translation is the wrath that is coming. That is making haste. That is that wrath that is closing distance, as it were. And so, friend, this is right for us at this moment, just briefly to meditate on what the prophet is called to set before secure sinners. But, friend, before sinners, no matter how seeming strong they might be, they are not permanent. Whatever sense of security they may boast in, it shall not last. We would be a different people this evening if we took that to heart. 
to the workplace, to the place of education, when we heard the news reporters online or when we spoke to folks on the street, security for sinners is a falsehood. But secondly, friend, it's not only the case that Jonah comes to a secure city. He comes to a city that's strong. He comes to a city that's great in strength. Uh, If you look at Nineveh's size, it's given to us in the text. It's a city of three days' journey. And as you look at the text, what you have here is this idea that the city is immense. And as archaeologists in the 19th century went out to find the city, it was a striking thing that they discovered. They thought they had found the city. And so they worked on excavations, and they found there was roughly about 12 square mile. But then, as the archaeologists continued to make their way throughout the desert, as they continued to dig, they found, out, they found that it was actually not 12 miles, but 72 square miles. The towers in Nineveh were 60 feet high, and the wall that linked those towers were 30 feet high. To give you a rough estimate of the size of this place, it is larger than modern-day Glasgow. This is the city that God has sent his prophet to, this lone Israelite, a city that even just visually is imposing. Its long shadows cast over a barren desert, testifying to strength, testifying to stability. Yet... Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In spite of your strength, in spite of your grandeur, in spite of all of these things, here's Jonah's message. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's even more striking when you consider just how brutal this was. When Jonah walked through the entrance of Nineveh, what would he have seen? We can piece this together from contemporary accounts or near contemporary accounts. On the walls at every entrance into the city, the victims of all of Assyria's enemies would often be hanging from the walls, flayed, as a testimony to Assyrian strength, as a testimony that Nineveh has stood for 40 generations and everyone who has stood against her has crumbled. When the prophet walked through the gates, friend, he saw, once again, a monument to man, to his security and to his strength. And yet his message was, this too will come to an end. And friend, briefly at this point, Jonah's message then was a very clear one, that powerful sinners will be overthrown. Here's the cry of the wicked, by the strength of my hand I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, and my hand hath found as the nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. He boasts in his strength, and, and friend, this is precisely what man does, isn't it? He ascribes to his own hand and to his own ability all things. The boasting of man seems to be almost boundless. He boasts in his strength. But at the end of the age, when the people of God reflect, when when the whole world is melted, when the sheep and the goats are at last separated, and the wicked have gone to their place, I want you to note how the godly reflect on all this come to pass. I'm reading here from, from Isaiah 25. 
These ones cry, O Lord, thou art my God, I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name. But then note this. For thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made of a city and heap, of a defensed city, a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Friend, what will the godly in the age to come say of London? What will they say of New York City? What will they say of Washington and all the great cities of the earth? Thou hast made a city in heap, of a defensed city a ruin. Any that would stand against God, any city that would be a rebel to Him, in spite of their strength, in spite of their pretended power. Here is the godly's assessment. The Lord has certainly overthrown them. And friend, that's certainly true of the individual sinners as well. Here is the woe of Scripture to them. Woe to them that stay on horses and trust in chariots, because they are many. And in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. It is a woe that is pronounced upon those who would boast in their own strength. But thirdly and lastly, this warning comes, and really this, I believe, is the emphasis of the text. It comes to a city great in sin. It is a great city before God. Not great in strength. Its size does not, of course, compare to an infinite and omniscient, omnipotent God. But certainly in its sin, it is great before the Lord. What's striking is, just briefly, friend, when you look at the founding of Nineveh, it takes you back to Genesis 10, and you ask the question, well, who built this great city? And the answer is Nimrod. Nimrod built the city. And what's striking is, as you, come to the, as you come to the ninth verse of Genesis 10, you have these words. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, that word hunter there does not necessarily mean a stalker and killer of animals. That word hunter throughout the scripture is used most often actually to describe evil rulers, tyrants, persecutors of God's people. And in fact, that's precisely the way that we're supposed to take that phrase regarding Nimrod. Nimrod, you remember, in the very next verse, we're told this, that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That's Genesis 10.10. Now, The reality is, what the text is telling us indubitably is just this. Nimrod was the ruler and the architect of Babel. And in what sense then should we understand Nimrod was a mighty hunter or ruler before the Lord? He was mighty in the sense that he was a provocative man. A God-provoking man. It was under his auspices and government. That Babel was erected. Oh and by the way. It was under his auspices. That Nineveh was built. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. Before the Lord. Because he was singularly provocative. And now we're told in the scriptures. Nineveh reflects her builder. She too has become great. Before the Lord. And so what do you find? 
These words in Isaiah 10, I will punish the fruit of the south heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, has exalted herself above God, like Nimrod, like those of the Tower of Babel. And so the Lord declares, now she is great before me. Now, friend, that means then that she is ripe in sin, as we said before. She's ripe to be harvested. And that's Jonah's message precisely. And just to give you a sense, historically, what we mean here, who was the patron god or goddess of Nineveh? Well, it was actually Ishtar. The Assyrian pantheon had all kinds of false and vain deities. But even some of those false and vain deities were made to be the patron saints of all kinds and patron goddesses of all kinds of virtues. Even Assyria knew some kinds of vain gods that were supposed to represent honesty, virtue, fidelity. But none of those would do for Nineveh. Nineveh must take to herself the goddess of uncleanness. The goddess of the most abhorrent wickedness. Of extreme fornication. That must be the one that represents Nineveh. That's the one. That's the vain god that she takes for herself. She's a God-provoking city. And friend, what this shows us is she is a hardened city. But notwithstanding her callousness before God, here is Jonah's message. Notwithstanding your provoking, notwithstanding your boldness in the face of God, here's Jonah's message. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Friend, the proud, the hardened sinner cries, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. I read that to you from Psalm 10 before, but, but as the psalmist uncovers the wicked's heart for us, note how he, note how he does this later on in the psalm. He says, the same one has said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. And then he goes on even further in the same psalm to say this. He has said in his heart, thou wilt not require. He says that to God. Note that. Note how provocative the sinner has become. At first, he simply said, I wouldn't be moved. And then he says, God does not see. And then he stands before the face of God. And friend, this is always the way a hardened sinner will be. He will stand even before the face of God and says, you will not require it. You will not require it. You see, friend, that's precisely the one we have in our text. And the warning that stands for Nineveh in our text stands for every heart and center this evening. Howsoever impervious they are, howsoever hardened they are to such warnings, there will be a time when that forbearance comes to an end. In fact, the way the prophet puts it to us in Isaiah 5 is this way. He says, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin, as it were, with a carp rope. And say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. Friend, is that not the world in which we live? Let us draw in our sin. 
Let us do all of these things that both the book of Scripture and the book of nature cry are God-provoking sins. And the man stands on the street corner and he cries, If God is displeased, let him strike me dead. Well, friend, what our text tells us is that one day that day will come. Let him be so provoking as he may. God's forbearance will come to an end. I think an illustration of this is really the Titanic. You take the, you take the ship that boasted in its size, its weight, and its speed, and all of those things were the very things that hastened her demise. She sank so quickly. She was unable to turn as she ought to have turned. Her size was such that under her own weight, she would sink. Friends, so also are the hardened sinners before God. They may boast in their sin, but their boasting will be their undoing. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, friend, as we close, just a few words of application. As I as I began this, this evening, I said to you that this is a clarifying word. It's a solemn word. This is the kind of word that you and I could not feed on for very long. But oh, how needful is it. When you and I go to workplaces and places of education, when we hear what we do on the streets, friend, how needful is this word. That sinners great in security. Sinners great in strength, sinners great in sin, will find that in spite of all of their greatness, they too, they will find by experience that God's judgment does come. It is the wrath to come, the wrath that hastens. And friend, if we take that to heart, how different will our demeanor be when we contemplate the wicked? And we contemplate the unregenerate around us. Their wrath is making haste. They may seem okay in the eyes of the world. And we are easily, we are easily deceived by that image, aren't we? But how needful are they for this word? But of course, friend, this shows us, as I've said before, a picture of repentance, and in this case it shows us the kind of preaching that repentance really looks to. It's that preaching that is that puts the soul away from self-security, away from strength in oneself, away from a trust in self, and from hardening in sin. Friend, these are all marks of genuine repentance. The truly penitent man is one who is not secure in himself. The truly penitent man is one who doesn't trust in his own strength. One who's not hardened in sin. That's the very kind of thing that the preaching of Jonah is striving to to upturn in the city. And for the man who truly is moved by the grace of God. Well, friends, such a man is just as we've described. His only boast is in the Lord. His only trust is in his grace. And he's a man who's been given a heart of flesh, not hardened in sin. But there is comfort in this text, isn't there? We all know how Nineveh responds to the preaching of God's word. 
And friend, I've just described to you at some considerable length this evening Nineveh's character, because that really, I believe, is the emphasis of the text. Well then, what consolation is that for us? A city that was great in self-security. A city that was great and boasted in its own strength. A city that was God-provoking and delighted to be so. Nevertheless, the Lord God in his mercy came to such great sinners to call them out from that judgment, to set them in the path that leads to life everlasting. God tendered his mercy even to these great sinners. And praise be to God, because if we can't see ourselves in Nineveh, friend, we are in a bad way. That grace came even to Nineveh reminds us that it's a remarkable thing that grace came even to us. And may that not only be a clarifying word, but may that be a comforting word as well. Amen.